The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 72 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wishing I'd been chosen as a new member of Gen 13 that embodied the popular fashion of the 90s with the codename Flannel, I'm Adam. (laughs) And returning to the podcast tonight is a man who was living life on the other side of the page for Marvel comic book readers in 1997, becoming privy to all the secrets of the X-Men without the use of mutant telepathic abilities. From CollectingCandy.com and a television screen near you, it's Jason Liebig. Hi, Adam. It's great to be back. Oh, this was when I saw this issue and all that was inside. I was just like, there's only one person to call because (laughs) there is so much Marvel in the moment, you know, of 1997, everything that was happening in this issue. So I know I felt the same way. Boy, it was like there there was so much stuff happening and you know everything from like bankruptcy to heroes are born the creators the the books oh my gosh yeah it was a lot all right well i'm sure back in the day there were a lot of people writing into marvel being like what's going on over there so we're going to start out with some letters by opening up willie lumpkin's mailbag Now, for those who don't recall, the Buddy Award was the letter selected by Jim McLaughlin every month that he thought was the most interesting or the wackiest or just gave him a chuckle. And this issue, it is going to Angie Hansen from (laughs) Juno.com. Gotta love those early. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, here's what she had to say. Dear Jimmy boy, I have discovered the truth about one of Wizard's most guarded secrets. I know who's in the bunny suit in the bunny award pictures. It is Thor, God of Thunder. Look very closely at the hammer the bunny is swinging. It sure looks like Molnir to me. And since Thor is the only one who can heft the mighty hammer, it must be him. I understand why you want to keep this secret. After all, it is pretty embarrassing for the son of Odin to be posing for pictures in a fan magazine. He must be hurting for cash since Marvel went bankrupt. Give Thor my regard. Keep him away from that Seamus guy. It just wouldn't do for an Avenger to start smelling like cheese. <laughs> now, here is Jim McLaughlin's response, however. Nice theory, but you're a bit off base. Thor's hammer, the sacred Mjolnir, can only be hefted by those who are worthy enough to lift it. That list of character includes Captain America, Beta Ray Bill, Wonder Woman in Marvel vs. DC, Thor's father, Odin, Thor's half-brother, Loki, really? And maybe even a couple of others. For instance, Journey into Mystery Editrix, that's a female editor, kiddies. Bobby Chase was seen holding something that looked like Mjolnir in the open house tour of Marvel feature in Wizard number 71. And how about Thor Ryan from the Evolgum universe? He's got a hammer, Ooh. but is it Mjolnir? Maybe, maybe not. So the buddy could conceivably be any one of these, or maybe someone else. The mystery lives on. <laughs> oh, Jim. 
He's always so good, Jim McLaughlin. You know, look, I mean, you guys run a podcast about Wizard Magazine, and I think Wizard Magazine really embraced irreverent sort of thing that you wanted the behind the scenes of comics to be. That is for sure. They gave us uh, kind of the fan edge. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, you know, it was like, it was kind of like, you know, like the cast of MASH running around. That's how you kind of saw them all. They were, they were funny, they were silly, and they did funny, silly things. Jim McLaughlin was definitely the Hawkeye, that's for sure. Right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing, Jason. We usually just read letters from the Magic Word Letters <laughs> column during this segment. But because right. you were the man who was answering the reader letters in the back of X-Men comic books during this time, yes. we revisit some of your work. So we've grabbed a letter from issue 70 of X-Men. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So just to give you a little backstory, as an assistant editor, because in publishing is not a great way to make money, but when you're an assistant editor, you made even less money than an editor. And one of the ways that we helped assistant editors, uh, you know, sort of bump up their income was you threw them letters pages, right? And in this case, they were throwing me a letters page. I don't remember how much money I got paid. I don't know. I feel it was like a hundred bucks a month. You know, in retrospect, it would have been nice to have the the high paid writers answer these letters because that would have been fun. Um, but they were probably already behind deadlines. So they threw it to us and we got to make a little extra money. And, you know, I got to eat at Taco Bell one more time that month. All right. <laughs> Um, so let's read the letter. Okay. Dear Expressions. All right. You guys are on the net. Oh, yeah. So context, this person was actually emailing our office. They were not sending in a physical letter. We had just gotten our AOL addresses. So that tells you the time period this was in. All right. And I was the only person who who opted to ever address that to. And like nobody else in the office wanted to deal with the computer or, wow. or email for that. Yeah. They were like, okay, let's leave that to Jason. He'll like it. Anyway. So, oh, yes, you guys are on the net. It makes it so much easier to send mail to you from now on. Something all Marvel editors would soon regret. All right. I just got my copy of the hot, hot X-Men 66. I love the story of how Dr. Cecilia Reyes and Iceman fight to escape. I remember that. Um, I've never been a fan of Iceman. What? Um, but this issue clearly made me look at the Icy Boy closely. He has never looked better. Mr. Scott Lobdell has delivered another good story! Exclamation point. He says good, but then he has three exclamation points. Anyway, the other story that, that touched me as much was on slot marvel universe well done i can see that one day you will become the number one writer on the wizard top 10 uh thanks for listening guys you have been producing top-notch work this is chun kiat writing from a very long email address mbox3.signet.com oh from singapore i, I believe wow yeah. so we're getting a letter from overseas that's great we picked this letter because of the mention of the wizard top 10 which i'm sure is what <laughs> scott lobdell was aiming for with his career that would have been the pinnacle for him <laughs> Um, he, you know, I would imagine he might have been at the top of that at one for a month or two, maybe during uh, Age of Apocalypse. I, I imagine that... so. Yeah, we got to yeah, go back yeah. and check that. Yeah, we'll run into the fact checkers for that. Yes, no, God, the Wizard Top Ten, such a thing, right? Oh my God, it was so important, and I feel like it was. I mean, this was just some guys up at the Wizard office is kind of deciding this. It wasn't based on any any mathematical metrics. I mean, certainly sales mattered, but. It wasn't the only thing that mattered, you know, so Wizard Top 10 last, it drove books. Wizard was very powerful. If you read your response here, short but sweet, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's see here. So this is me, I think, being political, right? Yes. Because they're loving Scott Lobdell. They're loving the direction of the X-Men. And I, 
for the record, I, I was really invested in Cecilia Reyes as a new X-Men. So I was very, I was very digging her. So I said, thanks, Sean. The best is yet to come. Of course, I'm a cheerleader. Joe Kelly and Steven Siegel on Uncanny X-Men have some great stuff in store for you very soon. And our beloved Scott is already wowing us with his work on Fantastic Four. See, everybody wins. So I'm not really telling you that he's left the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm telling you, he's left the book. So I know you love what Scott Lobdell is doing on X-Men, but hey, check out Fantastic Four. He's going to uh, be coming out right over there. Yeah, because by the next issue is when Wizard officially reports that both he and Joe Mad have left. So uh, yeah, yeah, that was very this is a moment was, in time. That was a bummer, Joe, Joe Mad leaving. But, you know, I mean, he was he was busy. You know, he was doing other things. Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot more about Scott Lobdell and hearing from Joe Mad a little bit later on. But I first, we got to check out one of those other X Men legends. Yes, we're going to start out with some. All right, so the two-page Lee Extends Reborn run is our top story this issue as it's announced that the Heroes Reborn titles have been given an extension. Sort of. Says Jim Lee matter-of-factly, quote, Marvel came to me and asked how I would feel about doing a 13th issue of each book. I assumed to fill a gap in their publishing schedule. I told them it sounded cool to me. And regarding the content of those issues, Lee reveals that there will be, quote, a rift in the negative zone. It's the same kind of rift that occurred at the end of Fire from Heaven, which was a recent Wildstorm crossover event. This is leading to rumors that a Wildstorm Marvel crossover is in the works that may even include amalgam-style mashups of characters from the two companies. Now, confirmation of the crossover rumor is found in an ad for a set of trading cards literally called Marvel versus Wildstorm that appears in this issue. And I actually have a sealed pack of those trading cards that I will be opening on our YouTube channel just after this episode drops. So that's something to look out for. Make sure you're subscribed over there to Wizards Podcast on YouTube. That'll be fun. So uh, I'll tell you this, Jason. I read the issue 13 stories. You know, there were four Heroes Reborn titles. It was World War Three. This I don't know if you remember anything about these 13th issues, but for me, like the universe mashup story was just kind of a rehash of the Valiant Image Deathmate event. Because okay. it's just like, we're not necessarily mashing up the characters. We're just doing different variations of teams where some Marvel characters are with some Wildstorm characters. Like, I did think it was fun. Like, Burnout from Gen 13 becomes the Human Torch for the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Maul from Wildcats is the thing for them. Wow. Because Ben Grimm is trapped in the negative zone with death blow. Like there's a lot going on there. You know, I'll be honest. Like I have no memory of any of this. I'm like, I think at that point, because for a while in the beginning of Heroes Reborn, Marvel in New York, that we didn't really have an official, I don't know, like Heroes Reborn connection person. I became the default person. So I would get their blue line books, to just flip through them, make sure there, there weren't bad words in them or whatever. But we, you know, obviously we didn't have any control over those things, but we were getting to see things before they went to print. And, you know, I was also one of the people who really, you know, sort of pushed out forward and tried to get the Heroes Return movement started. Right. So I, you know, I fought and got this secret meeting going and we did these things. And I think after, you know, Rob sort of inflamed and there was all that legal stuff going on there and they had what the fighting American and what have you and just all the stuff we were going through. I have a feeling by the time we were getting the heroes back, I had just washed my hands of heroes were born. 
Well, and what's weird is, like you say, you know, you got the Marvel bullpen conspiring, you know, to to bring Heroes Reborn down from the inside. The other shock of this story, for me at least, is something I was not even aware of, is an announcement that Jim Lee is going to become an editor for relaunches of The Defenders, Doctor Strange, and Nick Fury, but as part of the normal Marvel continuity now that Heroes Reborn has ended. Do you have any recollection of the reaction to the idea of Jim Lee staying on board after you guys had tried? tried so hard to just get it back to the New York office staff. So in reviewing this issue of Wizard for this podcast, I read that and I'm like, am I from a parallel universe? That did not go into my memory at all. I did not remember that. I do remember the 13th issue stuff, or at least the discussions and trying to smooth over sort of the transition, the publishing schedule about Jim coming on to do more stuff. I really don't remember that. And they must have had those conversations, but it's possible that they kept them you know, separate or I just forgot them because they never happened because it wasn't, you know. And then the next thing that got thrown our way was uh, the Marvel Knights thing like a year or two later. Yeah. But no, I don't remember that at all. You know, of course, and the thing we talked about last time were all the rumors that Marvel was going to stop publishing comics, that Jim was going to take on the X-Men next and everyone was going to all, you know, they were just going to license the comics like they did the action figures in the movies and we we weren't going to become a publishing house. But this stuff about Jim Lee becoming like sort of an overseer of what was it the Defenders and stuff? Yeah. I don't remember that at all. That's wild. Yeah, I, I'm sure we have some big Jim Lee fans out there that could tell us whether or not that even actually happened. Maybe that was announced. Maybe it was the plan and maybe I, it fell apart. I can, no, it definitely didn't happen. That, that, okay. that never happened. That I can tell you unless I really have shifted over from Earth 617. <laughs> And closing out that article, because it was a big two-page spread, we did yeah. get the announcement of the post-Heroes Reborn Marvel creative team. So we have Kurt yes. and George Perez on The Avengers, Scott Lobdell and Alan Davis on Fantastic Four, Kurt Busiek once again with Sean Chen now on Iron Man, and the triumphant return of Mark Wade and Ron Garney to Captain America, which Wizard had been demanding and whining about for an entire year. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, fantastic. But I do have to ask, because we, we mentioned it before, we we know that Scott Lobdell was not long for the X titles at this point. He's already announced on Fantastic Four. In a news piece we read in a previous issue, he seriously said, like, you know, Heroes Reborn is an opportunity for me to basically find a new gig, like find something else. So do you remember, like, specific creative frustrations on the part of Scott Lobdell during the time you were working with him? I mean, you know, my memory is that there were frustrations, you know, uh, on both sides. You know, I think Scott dismissed any criticism <laughs> He got or any, you know, he would look when he was working with Bob and they were, you know, they were working together and, and forging Scott onto the X-Men books. Like I, I wasn't there for that. But my understanding was he really got great work out of him. And then I think Scott, I don't know. I mean, look, Scott was where he was, you know, but I just remember him being a little flippant. And that was that was him talking to me about things not going the way they should or, or the books or, you know, maybe not being as exciting as they should be. And that may have been where his ego was at that moment. But, you know, it felt like the books were lacking something at that point. And so there was a desire to bring in a new voice, maybe not replace the voice that was there. But I don't know that because I think at that point, Scott was writing both books, if I recall. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, and I think maybe the idea of bringing in another voice to to pair against him or pair with him um, was not something he wanted. I don't recall any of that. I don't recall a specific example of that. I do remember, you know, at one point we had a meeting where we, we went out to lunch with Scott and Chris Claremont to talk about the X-Men books we got because we got Chris to come back in and just have a lunch with us, which was one of the more fascinating moments of my Marvel career. <laughs> um, and, and a really delightful one because it really was 
Um, it, and I'm, I apologize if I said this the last time we were here, but it was really one of these moments where we were talking about something like the Mutant Registration Act, right? And uh, how one of those two gentlemen was like, if if mutants existed in the real world, right? If suddenly we had mutants in what at the time was 1997 America, would the Mutant Registration Act exist? And one of them was like, absolutely. The other one was like, no, it's absolutely not constitutional. And so there was a very interesting divergence of opinions on some of these sort of fun fundamental ideas and how they would work in the real world. So I, I really enjoyed it. But insofar as Scott, no, you know, I remember some of our interactions saying, you know, I mean, Scott telling, well, the books are not going to fall on my watch. And then, you know, they didn't with regard to being the top selling books in comics, you know, but then, you know, he had, he was recently married. And then I think he was sending in scripts from for Fantastic Four from Paris on his honeymoon or something, you know, or some trip that he and his wife at the time took. And, you know, it felt to me like he was losing interest. So I guess, you know, that would be, I guess, my conclusion there. Okay. You know? yeah, yeah, it definitely comes together that way. And what's interesting is, you know, uh, recently on our social media from the last issue, we posted that photo tour of the Marvel offices that Jim McLaughlin went on. And we showed, you know, you were part of that, but also yeah, that was fun. and Scott Lobdell are there. So I wonder oh, if that was like the day you guys went out to lunch. You know? I would say that's a that's a very good possibility. Moving on here, though, Wizard polled their America Online subscribers as yes. to which supervillain has the best chance of taking over the world. That was the the query that you were supposed to vote on. So Apocalypse was hands down the favorite with 42% of the vote. He was followed by Doctor Doom with 17%, Lex Luthor with 12%, Darkseid with just 10%, the category of Other was 9%, you had uh, Ra's al Ghul with 7%, and that little rascal, you know, the Red Skull, bring it up here. <laughs> just 3%. Oh. But Jason, um, yeah. you, if you were going to betray the human race, you were going to do the bidding <laughs> of a supervillain who you truly believe would reign supreme, would be successful at it. Which villain would you be the lackey for? Who do you think? Ooh. <laughs> um, look, I mean, okay. Like I have a complicated answer. First of all, you know, Apocalypse, he doesn't exactly have a great record with, at least in my day, he didn't have a great, I know there's been other versions of Apocalypse since, but in my day, you know, it's like, you didn't really want to live in the world that he created. Right. At the same time, if you work for Apocalypse, you're getting superpowers. That's provocative. Oh. So, so there's a draw there. Um, Red Skull, no way. Razagul, no. I mean, Lex Luthor, Darkseid, definitely not. That guy's a bummer. But <laughs> Doctor Doom, I'm intrigued by Doctor Doom as a supervillain. I'm on Team Doom mainly because yeah. you know he's like the most human. Like yeah. I like of all of these choices. And he's somebody who's just kind of like, look, I just want to rule the world because I think I got the best handle on everything. All right. Yeah. Like, just trust me. I'm the smartest guy. I'm going to figure it out. You know, like, and I feel like he's, he's less malevolent in his uh, desire to rule the world as much as his ego gets the best of him. So I, I would be right there with doom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I'm not voting for doom. Let me be absolutely clear. <laughs> but if I have to choose from a list of bad options i believe he's the best bad option yeah and i will say the only uh downside i can see to it is that he did actually rule the world in the 2099 continuity and then that continuity disappeared you know they canceled the book so was that doom's fault hard to say but <laughs> definitely not definitely not that's fake news <laughs> 
Doom, Doom 2099 all the way. He'll be back. Goodness. Next story here, though, is that Jed 13, new members in, Campbell out. It's declaring that two new characters named Freestyle and Crackpot, which are just about the worst names I can think of, uh, will be joining the popular Wildstorm title soon. But also officially announces that J. Scott Campbell and Alex Garner will be leaving Gen 13 with issue number 20, though they will contribute covers through issue 24, which is always misleading. I don't like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Al Rio will be the reporter placement artist on the title with Brandon Choi continuing on writing duties says Campbell quote leaving after gen 13 number 20 frees me and Alex up to work on the gen 13 Batman crossover scheduled for November and the passing of the gen 13 torch allows me to get started on a creator own title for Wildstorm that I'm looking to debut in mid 1998 well all of that statement is not quite accurate uh Because as we covered in the past, Gen 13 Batman never happens after a long protracted negotiation between Wildstorm and DC. Ed Campbell's creator wrote Danger Girl is not published through Wildstorm. It's a cliffhanger title for sure where, hey, Joe Mad, take it off and join it up with him over there. That's now, right. Speaking of Jed 13, this issue features an ad, Jason, for a revamp of X-Force in which Marvel really seemed to be going for a Gen 13 vibe because they're, they're yes. portraying the team without their militaristic uniforms anymore. They're ditching cable and they're just in trendy clothes and they're just kids on their own taking off, young adults. I mean, Siren is literally wearing purple and green and has long red hair like Fairchild. Boom Boom is doing her best free fall impression and it's hard to deny Danny Moonstar is showing way more skin than usual, just like Sarah Rainmaker was known to do in Gen 13. And plus, you know, you you just have a, a the, the general vibe of it all. But I just have to ask you, obviously Gen 13 is just a hipper version of the New Mutants or X-Force. I mean, that's basically what they were. But Sure, yeah. We're talking whether we think X-Force was taking inspiration from Gen 13. Is that the is that the right. is that the idea? Look, my my feeling was at least in the editorial office we were not paying that much attention to Gen 13. Don't get me wrong, I would look at the covers and I would say, "Look at this. Look at what they're getting away with. You know, we should do some more of that." <laughs> But really, I think what you saw with X-Force, I think John Francis Moore was the writer at the time, right. but Adam Polina was coming on as the artist. And Adam Polina, you know, there's a lot of cool, hip comic book creators these days. In the 90s, there were less. And we were, you know, we were a little more buttoned up crowd, right? And But Adam Polina came in with like his blue hair, you know, he was in great shape. He was living downtown in Manhattan, you know, and so he really brought a vibe. And I think it was John Francis Moore and, and Adam, you know, sort of coming together and saying, you know, and then, you know, working with editorial to try to come up with a new direction for X-Force and coming up with this on the road bit, which was going to explore these other things, you know, of which Adam Polina was living at the time and probably is still living. To, I mean, I'm still in touch with Adam, but is really, you know, he is that guy. He is sort of like the cool hedonistic guy who's going to festivals and designing things and oh. going out in the desert. You know, he's that dude. Like he would come into the offices from downtown with, like I said, his blue hair and everything. And people would look and look at him like, what, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> next to, next to the sort of, you know, more, I don't know, nebbishy, nerdy, you know, sort of comic creators that we get, you know, not, not, you know, well, that's what it is. You know, it's just like you, in 1997, if you saw Kurt Busiek, you know, he looks like a comic book guy, right? You know, yeah. but if you saw Adam Polina, he looked like a music festival guy. And so I think that was those two creators, the writer and artist on the book, really taking some of those life experiences and trying to imbue them. And, you know, Adam's art also really lent itself to that. And I think that, that was that, you know, that that's my opinion. Other than saying, oh my God, it would be great to get Travis Charest or, you know, or for that matter, J. Scott Campbell, mm -hmm. I don't really remember us ever looking to Gen 13 for stylistic 
music inspiration. All right. We'll, we'll put it up on social media. We'll, we'll see if the fans. And that's, and that's not a dig on Gen 13. I'm just saying it's yeah. like, I like, I like, I liked what I liked how that book looked and I liked the energy. And Jim was, of course, a genius and doing great things. But no, I mean, I never remember anything. Oh, we need to be more like Gen 13. Okay. Not at all. Yeah. That, that's the perspective we were looking for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. man. Right. Yeah. But uh, another, speaking of X Force, uh, a man who, who dared to spit in the face of Marvel for a moment in time. Y2 relaunches Youngblood, reports that Rob Liefeld is creating a new Youngblood book for his awesome comics imprint, with Alan Moore writing the adventures for him. Now, indirectly criticizing Rob's throw-everything-at-the-wall kind of attitude from the original Youngblood, Alan Moore explains, quote, The thing I'm trying to do is restart Youngblood as a less sprawling, more dynamic team, which it's revealed means keeping the roster to a tight six characters, and most of them new. Moore continues, quote, if you have more characters than that, the action gets cluttered and it becomes increasingly difficult to establish each character as a real person in their own right. Which, if you want my translation, he's saying Liefeld's original Youngblood comics were kind of overindulgent, too many characters that you never got a chance to care about. She's like, oh, look at this design, look at this design. And he's saying he actually knows how to write a successful comic book with actual characterization. However, there were only three issues of this relaunch released. I don't think anybody was clamoring for it. And even Alan Moore couldn't really save the concept. I read him. It's just kind of generic superhero action. He sprinkles in a few of the previous Youngblood characters, but most of the time he's just focusing on these new creations that he's put together. So bottom line, Alan Moore just wants to keep cashing those checks from Rob Liefeld. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Rob, Rob wants his, his hero working for him. And so he's like, okay, whatever. Uh, but I, you know, last time we talked, Jason, you said, you know, you actually like Rob. You think he's a, a good guy, but question, can you name a non-Marvel Rob Liefeld comic that you enjoy just in general? I'm not, I'm not. Adam, that's v- first of all, that's very cynical. <laughs> Um, no, look, I mean, with all of his warts, like, you know, certainly Rob has, has had his flaws, as many of us have, not all of us. Um, but, uh, but Rob, you know, steps on a big stage often. He creates a big stage often. And, you know, I think for people of a certain age, really loved his books and probably have nostalgia for his books. I never did. You know, I probably picked up the first issue of Young Blood, but it just seemed derivative and uninteresting to me at the time. I remember reading, and again, I was of a certain age. I do remember loving, you know, what he was doing in New Mutants and in X Force, you know, early on. So, do I love any of his other characters? Uh, no, I don't. You know, it's not it's not my scene. But that that's true for a lot of people. Like, right? Uh, like Jim Lee, who I think stands as a very different kind of creator, has not made the kinds of maybe missteps within certain groups or whatever it's not as arbitrarily hated i do think rob was arbitrarily hated by a lot of fans at certain terrors certain people in the industry just because he was young and successful and you know and maybe some of his own some of that was earned but jim on the other hand is a guy who is beloved right and respected in an in sort of the in an antithetical way to way the way rob is and you know i don't honestly personally i just never really catered to too many of his creations right like Sure, Jim Lee's Batman is really cool, but Jim Lee's Wildcats, eh, I don't really care about Jim yeah. Lee's Wildcats. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, a, a lot of the criticism that is, you know, sent Rob's way is, well, it's all derivative. You know, you can see what his influences were. And he's just doing his version of this. But 
Jim Lee does exactly the same thing. He has very few original ideas. You know, it's just like, this is my interpretation of this type of hero. And so it's like, okay. And you just, yeah, you say less outrageous things in the press. That's just all it is. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, look, you know, Rob, Rob has a big voice and, uh, you know, and we've, we worked together a little bit, you know, and we certainly talked, we weren't buddies, you know, but he was, he was always very friendly to me and like i said i think he's a unique creator and i think the nine the 90s in comics would not be the same without him nope. i think a lot of i think i think what he brought to comics was important and you know and i hope still is look i mean i have you know i mean he's not he's not a villain in life you know what i mean he might have made some bad business decisions he might have you know he may have not paid somebody on time once or twice a long time ago i don't know for sure although i did hear some stories but you know ultimately what did he do you know he he kind of screwed us on heroes are born yes <laughs> He kind of didn't follow the uh, the spirit of the contract or the exact, you know, wording of the contract. And then he was allowed to do that. Things like that really happened. You know, he hired away our artists and writers, which literally their whole thing, the way they were selling Heroes Are Born is they could get talent we couldn't get. And within, I think, two or three issues, they had the team. They had literally the entire creative team from Cable writing and drawing Fighting American or whatever mm-hmm. So, yeah. but no, but like, look, I, you know, having dealt with Rob personally, I have affection for him. That's a sincere affection for him. Yeah. But I, you know, like, I don't, again, like he's not a villain, like a person who hurts people's a villain. You know, I don't think he's ever hurt anybody. I don't think he's ever. Yeah. Beat it, it's just more, it's, yeah, it's just creatively either you click with him or you have that nostalgia or you don't. So, and I also think, and I also think his ego at times can get in the way of his creativity, I think. And who you know, the fact that he was so successful at like 18 years old, I, you know, he, if he's ever been an asshole before and you know but i'm sure he has but if he's ever been an asshole before a loud mouth god i probably would have been worse so had i had all that <laughs> i've not been weighed down with that kind of success <laughs> i've not been cursed with it but no like rob i mean you know the great thing like when you really get to talk to him oh man he is such like an idea factory and they're not they're not alan moore ideas or garth ennis or yeah. grant morrison ideas you know they're not those kinds of ideas necessarily but they're really fun ideas and at the best, right? What I really loved about talking to Rob is how excited he was and how he really, really did come up with stuff that was so comic booky and fun. And, you know, like that's his persona. I think that's what he goes on to his social media now and talks about. And I think he conveys that really well. And I think that's why he has such a fan base nowadays, aside from Deadpool, right? I think Deadpool is one of the, his main draws, but I also think he can share that infectious love of this stuff. And I think that authentic passion, aside from all the baggage and some of that is earned, some of it is not, you know, if you can get in the wake of that passion and excitement, it's so much fun to, you know, like I love, like I'll even see Rob on Instagram, you know, opening up some statue of Deadpool or whatever. And I'm entertained, you know, it's fun. It's fun to see this guy love comics because he really does love comics. Yeah. And, and you know, he loves Stan and all that stuff. You know, he loved George, George Perez. And, you know, it's like, that's genuine. That is a genuine, genuine thing. And that's, that's rare. That's really neat. Yeah. We're actually going to be hearing from another comics pro who influenced Rob. Uh, down the line uh, in this episode. And yeah, they don't always share that enthusiasm that he has. But speaking of which, Jason, yes. let's yes. get to the meat of this issue. We're going to check out our table of contents. Love it. So Wizard 72 with an August 1997 cover date featured two different covers. The first was a Mike Waringo Spider-Man versus Venom design, while the other was a Joe Matarera piece given the spotlight to Maggot. And Cecilia Reyes, they were the newest X-Men at this time. And in fact, uh, in their big book of covers, Wizard actually says here, no, really, these two were X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> they can't believe that that was the, the big new uh, <laughs> debut on the scene here at this time. 
But the issue came packed with a Wizard Nightwing Chrome trading card, an X-Men poster, an exclusive Men in Black comic book order form, plus a, an electronic gaming monthly subscription form. Uh, but also wow. included was a mail-away offer for a Dark Child half comic. Dark Child was having its moment. Now, one thing I want to bring up, this is only for like the biggest wizard nerd like myself, but there was a printing error in one of our copies of Wizard 72 because the X-Men cover that I have, when I was going through the issue, putting together the show notes, I grabbed the other one because I was like, there's a page missing here in this uh, you know, discussion of the major bummer comic, which we're going to get into. And then I looked at the other one. It was missing 28 pages. What? Occasionally we buy these used copies just as a reader copy. And there's like, you know, a, an order form cut out for one of the contests or somebody pulled out something, you know, as a nice thing to put on their wall. But this is like full pages, no sign that they were forcibly removed. We actually checked with a friend oh. of the show, Gabe. He had a copy of the same issue and it was complete. So near as I can tell, it has something to do. There's a BMG music order form that's bound into the issue. And in this Spidey Venom cover edition, it's that it has the missing 28 pages, uh, the order form is in a completely different part of the magazine. So wow. it seems to be like somebody at the printing plant did something wrong there. So it's just a bizarre mm. printing error. If anybody else out there has this issue and can check on that or remembers reading it back in the day, I'd love to hear about it. Is ours the only one? It's so weird. <laughs> the error variant of Wizard, uh, it's going to be very valuable right. in like 50 years. So get it graded, <laughs> get it authenticated. That's um, right. You heard it here first. <laughs> now, Getting back into your world here, Jason, our yeah. first cover story, Army of Darkness, explores whether or not X-Men comics had lost their way with the oppressive Operation Zero Tolerance storyline. <sighs> following in the wake of another pretty serious story onslaught. But says artist Joe Matarera, quote, When X-Men started, it was kind of campy and fun, maybe even silly. Now it's just really dark and depressing. I'm not a big fan of this new tone, but that's because I'm more into upbeat stories that have more action without the dark, depressing edge to it. Now, Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris responds to the idea by reflecting, have things gotten too dark? That could be. I actually prefer characters who are a little more innocent and a little more hopeful. The possible culprit for taking the X-Men down this path, Scott Lobdell refutes the claim, saying, quote, I actually find the X-Men quite a bit more optimistic than they have been in years, but also admits to the <laughs> inherent bummer of being a mutant hero in the Marvel Universe. He says, quote, you join the Avengers and they give you a room on Fifth Avenue, a little Avengers card that lets you get the best seat at the best restaurants and you know that tony stark is gonna pay your every bill if somebody's <laughs> gonna join the x-men you don't get all the perks and you're not gonna have a lot of fun <laughs> it's a great yeah, it's perspective a it's a fair it's a great quote and it's a fair point now, Lovedell's cohorts think that the tone has been building for quite a while, however. Harris points to the violent nature of Wolverine, declaring his presence gave an edge to the team. While Matarera looks back to less than a decade earlier, quote, I think Bishop started this whole dismal stuff. He's definitely <laughs> one of the darker characters. I can't remember drawing him smiling, ever. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Joe Mad was not happy with what was going on here. And any wonder he was taken off. But I'm curious, Jason, as as an assistant editor, watching the books come together each month, getting the letters coming in. Did yeah. Did you feel like the X-Men were on the right path in 97 or had the intensity kind of canceled out the fun? I mean, look, at the time, I was certainly very opinionated. I mean, look, I think in retrospect, looking back at this, God, 25 years later, and looking at comics in general in the 90s, you can see that in many respects, they were humorless, right? Yeah. They were very dark. They were Zack Snyder's comic book industry, right? You know, in the 90s. Um, <laughs> 
you know, it was dark, it was bleak. Um, these were the themes, right, that we sort of got from the 80s and stuff and carried on. Certainly, I think, look, in the tw- 2000s, you know, comics definitely found their lightness. They found humor, you know, in the mainstream, right? Some of these ideas that maybe we, you know, where you thought Batman and, and the Avengers and everybody was too precious, you know, to do humor, um, you started to see more of that. I remember, was it Justice League International? Guy yeah. Gardner gets punched in the face. That kind of stuff is what mainstream superheroes are now in many respects, right? Yeah. They, what they were doing was so pioneering in, in many regards. Um, and I love those guys. But really deserve, you know, some foundational sort of point back to respect. And I think people do point back to that. But yeah, were comics really dark? They definitely were. You know, God, Age of Apocalypse is just one big, super, like, super successful dark story, right? I mean, they were really dark. What Did I think they were dark at the time? I don't think I thought they were too dark. I don't remember feeling like we needed a champion for funnier books, right? For more humor. I don't remember fighting for any of that stuff. So if we were wrong, I was wrong right along with everybody else or whoever else was doing that. You know, at the same time, I did help, you know, Shepard Generation X Underground, which was a very lighthearted book. I know, but you know, look, I think Joe Kelly and Steven Siegel were coming in and I love those guys. Amazing. I remember one of the first things we were talking about was like a thing that was sort of like, it was sort of like a mutant concentration camp, right? Like that was the storyline that the X-Men were going to be stuck in. And, you know, and that got like, like Bob and Mark sort of vetoed that. Right. And this was the first clash of the creative clash between Joe Kelly and Steve, you know, and that's one of the reasons why they ultimately left the books and you know their frustration with everything because they wanted to do that. And even Bob saying, well, that's too dark. Right. But I think these are nuanced things. It's easy to look back and very accurately state, boy, you know, it would have been nice to have a little more lighthearted storytelling in these books. And I do agree with that. It seemed like even Peter Parker, you know, our affable Peter Parker, and this is one of the reasons why maybe the ultimate Spider-Man was able to succeed, is because, you know, you had lost so much of that. Peter, his life has gone through so much. He had been ground down by life and its many terrible events, you know. It's one of those things, too, where it feels like maybe... The stories were like, you know, dark and depressing all along since Bishop, like Joe Mann is saying, but but it feels like his artwork made you think otherwise because it was so animated and fun. Like that the artwork maybe didn't a hundred percent always match, you know, the, the plot lines that were going on just because they were, you know, serious. So probably people were able to hang on as long as they could. And then it was kind of like, okay, maybe, maybe even that can't save it, you know? And look, Scott Lobdell was a comedian, yeah. stand-up comic before he wrote comics, right? And he would insist that he was still a stand-up comic when he was writing them, you know, and he, but he, <laughs> he did, he did infuse humor in the books and, you know, whether that worked or didn't or when it did, whether it landed, you know, but looking back and it's, like I said, it's easy. To, I'm reading this wizard magazine and I'm like, oh, wow, we really were a bummer, you know, but like you have, you put people in peril. That's what you do. Yeah, you can get away with like an issue, right? You can get away with an issue of people going out and playing baseball. At least you couldn't Claremont's time. Yeah, you know, or at least part of an issue before the the Hellfire. You know, yeah, yeah, before the Hellfire Club is going to come on and like whoop your ass. (laughs) But you know, comics have changed a lot, and we've certainly realized there's far more ways, and the audiences have also become more familiar with those ways. The audience is more diverse, and so you have a more diverse audience reading comics for very different experiences. You know, but I I would say I would say it's a fair criticism. It was a fair criticism then you know coming off of again coming off of onslaught i mean you know even i that's how i got my job at marvel i criticized onslaught i thought yeah this is i didn't say it was too dark i just said it was very unoriginal 
So that's, yeah. Well, yeah. It, here's the thing, Jason. If X Men wasn't delivering on the laughs, then it feels like the subject of the next story was really that was their focus. We're going to put a smile on the face of the readers because bumming around is an interview with writer John Arcudi and artist Doug. Is it Mank or Mankey? Do you know? I, th- I think it's Mankey. Okay. Uh, about their new book from DC Comics, Major Bummer, which Arcudi describes as, quote, a bizarre comedy action satire that will hopefully be different than anything out there and damn funny at the same time. The pair had previously cor- collaborated on creating The Mask, of course, at Dark Horse Comics, and of they course. certainly brought that madcap action to this story. It's basically, it's about a 20-something slacker who was accidentally given super strength and super intelligence by a pair of alien college students doing a case study for their class. <laughs> and as Arcudi explains, quote, he might be able to cure cancer if he applied himself, but he'd rather use his brain to try and steal cable. And I will tell you, I remember seeing this ad back in the day, and I always wanted to read the series but i just never saw it on the shelf or i just never wanted to spend my money there but i finally went through it this last week and read this series and it is hilarious it is so much fun it's kind of like the tick meets greatest american hero oh wow it's like this world where people want to be superheroes they get superpowers from the aliens and then they're trying to figure out what to do with them it's just it's really fun but do you remember the series at all i mean i remember it existing i did not read it so okay. you know i'm with you i just i saw it but you know I, look at the time was i diversifying my reading not very much i was really focused on the superhero stuff i was trying to understand the world we were working in you know um i i did occasionally read like i would read read mad men and things and that's why i tried to pursue my call read a few years later to work on actually no i was pursuing him right then because I wanted him to work on Fantastic Four when we got the book back. Oh, and of course he eventually yeah. did that. So yeah, yes he did. But I was the first one to get try to get him for it. <laughs> ah, love it. Yeah. Uh- now, the next article here, though, Silence is Golden, is an interview with the reclusive comic book artist Michael Golden, an artist who is so concerned with his privacy that he submitted a self-portrait to Wizard in lieu of sitting down for a photograph. <laughs> and uh, Golden oh was God. celebrated for his run on Micronauts in the 80s. He did some work on Batman and Doctor Strange. He provided the art for Bucky O'Hare at Continuity Comics with Larry Hama. He even did the first appearance of Rogue in X-Men Annual Number 10. That was a Michael yes. Golden story. But then he kind of seemed to disappear just as the industry was blowing up. And at this time, Golden was returning as the writer and artist for Jackie Chan's Spartan X miniseries at Topps Comics, uh, a project for which wow. he had been under contract for five years as it languished at Marvel and eventually got brought over to Topps through editor Renee Winterstatter. And he explains, quote, it was frustrating. I had my opportunity when the industry was in its heyday five years ago. Bucky O'Hare was a major player in the toy business, but here I was turning jobs down because I was obligated to this Jackie Chan project. Comfortably earning a living away from comics in the commercial design industry for a decade, Golden states that he's not comfortable with the cult of personality that's required to make it as a star in comics, and reveals that the only reason he agreed to do what is only his second interview ever with the press Mm. states, quote, I freely admit the only reason I'm doing this is because Renee Winterstetter was quite emphatic that it would help the project. (laughs) Yeah. But he is actually pretty, I don't know, forthright in all his opinions, which is nice. He says... 
The adolescent side of me thinks the comic's work is fun. I enjoy it because I like telling stories. But he admits, quote, I don't like superheroes. The genre's popularity completely eludes me. I figured out the tricks. That's my job. But I don't understand. <laughs> now, regarding the younger generation of comics artists at this time, Golden states, quote, I've always admired what Todd's achieved because he's done it exactly the way I would have. He focused on his goal and he didn't let anything distract him. I look at him and I say, if I could have had a son, Todd McFarland would have been it. <laughs> that is a statement. Wow. That's so affectionate. Yeah. And McFarlane <laughs> and Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, like they all cite Michael Golden as like this big influence. Yes. But Jason, is that is his name something that means something to your comics fandom? Yes, absolutely. Now, at a point after this, Michael Golden was actually brought in to be an art director at Marvel Comics. Like he oh. worked in office. So I had an opportunity to get to know him. But as a kid, as a fan, I did know him through his Micronauts work and through the NAM. And, uh, you know, I wasn't savvy enough to speak to the art itself. You know, I wasn't an aspiring artist at that point, but I just liked the books. I liked the characters. I liked the stories. And, you know, unconsciously, it was because of the artwork, you know, and the writing. But getting to know Michael was was actually what I count as one of the great gifts of my career working in comics, getting to know him, getting to be friends with him. You know, 20 years running when I see him at conventions because now he does do them. Um, because he got, I see him at New York Comic Con every year and every year it's one of my favorite times. I'll squat down by his booth while he's doing his commissions or whatever and occasionally signing autographs and stuff or when people line up with their books. But we catch up. We have a heritage in common. I know he doesn't say where he's from, but you know, we're, he's from Nebraska and I'm from Nebraska and we talk about that. But you know, we, we share tales and you know... I, after I left comics, he was one of the people who said, wow, when you left, you just disappeared. He goes, much respect. <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't try to stay in comics. And I'm like, yeah. So we get it. We talk about what I'm up to these days. And he is, I absolutely love Michael Golden. He's one of my favorite people in comics. And reading that interview, which I may or may not have read back then, was really delightful. And it's also really interesting because it's where he was at that point. Yeah. And it seems to me he's... You know, he's a different point now, or he has been, you know, he's sort of... It sounds like that Jackie Chan project was just, it put him in stasis, because he says, like, I got yeah. this reputation as somebody who didn't finish projects, and I wanted to prove that I would finish a project, so I did nothing until Jackie Chan's comic came out. And so he was, he was a man of principle who was really trying to hold to that, which is great. But he also, it's great to hear he's at conventions now, because, yeah, he has a whole diatribe about how he doesn't want to go to conventions. I did it in the early days, and I don't like, I don't give in to the ego and I don't enjoy it, but I'm curious, you know, how do you feel about the self-promotion angle that is necessary to create this persona to become a successful comics creator, especially in this like Kickstarter era, you know? Yeah. I know. I think that's, I, look, I think that is a fascinating point of view. And that's one of the things I really picked up on in his interview there. And look, this was at a time where if you wanted to get big bucks, uh, you know, you had to schmooze the guys at Wizard in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. That's how a lot of those guys were getting, not all of them, but that's how guys were getting up in those, you know, up in those lists, right? It wasn't just that, of course, yes, they were great making great books and so on. But, you know, if you were smart, you were schmoo you were throwing parties and inviting Jim McLaughlin and, and Squad to those parties, <laughs> right? Joe Casada, you know, and, and Jimmy Palmia. They threw great parties. I mean, that, that, that was default. But no, so I think I can understand at the time his lack of desire, you know, because that's not what he got into the business for, right? He got into the business, you know, in the eras of, you know, the Archie Goodwins and these guys. And it's like, it wasn't about, there was none of that, right? It, there was obviously, even in the nineties, there wasn't social media the way we have it now, you know? And so 
it's only gotten worse, Michael. <laughs> you know? And the idea of self-promotion, I think, for young artists now is just part of the job they understand. You know, I mean, that that is true. You have to self-promote and there's ways to do it authentically and there's ways to do it with a bunch of bullshit. And, you know, but coming in the wake of all those image guys and the and Wizard magazine and all these things and the cult of personality, and he's not wrong about any of that. I understand his sort of grumpy, you know, sort of derision of that and his sort of putting up the hand and saying, you know, I don't want to get into any of that, even though some of it you can actually do without becoming that dirty part of it, you know, that part that you may not like. Yeah. And what I found interesting, there is one very brief mention that he and Todd McFarlane were talking about him doing covers for a certain project. And Wizard, in like the prior issue, had dropped very briefly that because McFarlane was about to do his Kiss comics, uh, that it was Michael Golden was going to do covers, which he ends up not doing. But I did oh. that just an interesting piece of the history for me because we're going to get into it a little bit later. But those Psycho Circus books were a big deal to me. Yeah, um, no, and but Michael, I mean, what a fascinating guy! Just a just a guy who really understands comics, and you know, he can sometimes like he's he's not bullshitting you, right? But sometimes that can rub people the wrong way, you know. And uh, and I certainly saw that. But like God, when I see him, it's like it's like me. Meeting a like a lost best friend, and not where they were best friends, but it's like he's so warm and congenial to me, you know. And it's just like it's like I love it. <laughs> Is he still rocking the ponytail like he has? No, a- no, he got his hair cut. I mean, I think he cut his hair maybe like I don't know five ten years ago. Now I have a ponytail, so. <laughs> We're taking that over. He's gotten legit. Um, but no, it's great. He looks great. He's doing well. You know, it seems like he's enjoying life and he's happy, you know. But yes, he's a straight shooter as he's ever been. You yeah, know, that's is- that's good to hear. Definitely yeah. wasn't my era. He's kind of like the Paul Smith to me, where he's somebody who like mm. existed for this moment and everybody said he was great, that he disappeared for a while, and that was the exact yeah. when I was getting into comics. But I definitely respect him after reading this interview. Yeah. Inspired so many people, you know, the recently departed uh, Jason uh, Body Bags guy, you know, he was very influenced by Michael. Um, Even Joe Matarera, to a degree, you know, was probably influenced by Michael. I mean, like you said, all those great artists, you all claim influence, you know, from from Michael Golden and deservedly so. He's amazing. This is a public service announcement, geeks. Manscaped now has beard products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below-the-waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code WIZARDS20 for 20% off your order plus free shipping. Now, geeks, I had such a great time growing out my beard like a Kryptonian trapped in the negative zone. You know, Zod may have been a villain, but his style was heroic. And even though my wife wanted me clean-shaven, I'm still using these awesome tools to keep my sideburns, nose, and ear hair looking sharp, and, uh, down south, too. But, you know, I'm doing it all starting off with the Beard Hedger Pro Kit, and it is the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric Beard Hedger. The Beard Hedger, it's tough on hair, but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time. And really, you aim it, you put it where you want it, it takes care of business. It's great. But it's also waterproof, and it's a cordless trimmer, so it's got this rotary wheel as well that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of the extra add-ons, all those little clips and sizing pieces. The Pro Kit comes with four dermatologist-tested formulations for your post-trim care, okay? Now, this includes 
includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, the beard oil, and the beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus, the kit has three free gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. Gotta get all those details worked out, right? With a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed. Right? That's all you need? Wrong. You need to keep an eye out for those tough-to-trim ear and nose hairs. So the brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with no tugging, guaranteed. It's never been so painless to mind your manholes. <laughs> and as awkward as it might be to talk about my dad's manholes, I sent him that Weed Whacker 2.0 for Christmas, and he's still enjoyed it to this day. Michael's dad's loving it. It's the perfect gift for Father's Day, all in good time. But now that you have your face looking great with all all those, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. The Performance Package 4.0 now includes the Weed Whacker 2.0. That's great news! And all of the other below-the-waist grooming products Manscaped is known for. Your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all the bases, if you know what I mean. So go ahead, get 20% off and free shipping with our code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com. Use our code WIZARDS20. 20. We've been talking about it. It's time to get on it, geeks. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Now, back to the show. Dear listener, in case you were worried that we weren't going to hear any more from Scott Lobdell, we have another article here where he is consulted. That is right. Bad is Good is a thought-provoking interview with comics creators about the trend of cashing in on the popularity of villains to turn them into heroes, or at the very least anti-heroes, that can star in their own titles. Now, examples given are Catwoman, Venom, Deadpool, or Sabretooth and Magneto joining various X-teams. So Scott Lobdell theorizes, quote, the longer a villain is around, the more a writer is called on to flesh out who he is. The more you look at them, the more sympathetic they seem because of their background or motivations. While Howard Mackey provides counterpoint by stating, quote, you can sympathize with what happened to a bad guy without him becoming a hero or wanting him to win. Lubdell admits, however, quote, my personal feeling is that we're in the hero business and we should be doing comics about the good guys, not about the villains. While Marvel editor Ralph Macchio suggests that, quote, kids feel empowered by characters who are wild and who can get away with stuff. But Mark Wick, <laughs> who once wrote a Deadpool miniseries, shares his concerns about selling villains to kids. Quote, Too many of those books send the wrong message, saying that we can overlook these actions and that people don't have to be responsible for what they do if they regret doing it. Frankly, if I'd known Deadpool was such a creep when I had agreed to write the miniseries... <laughs> wouldn't have done it. Somebody who hasn't paid for their crimes presents a problem for me. Hmm. Now, apparently villains becoming lethal protectors, as we are hearing here, is not a means of redemption in the eyes of most of these creators. As Scott Lobdell gives us the final word here, asking, quote, if Jeffrey Dahmer discovered a cure for cancer, is the slate clean? Saving others <laughs> doesn't redeem anybody in the eyes of those who were killed or their families. And of course, Jeffrey Dahmer's having his moment in the spotlight again these days. It's just yeah, like, we don't have to we don't have to explain who he is anymore. No, but I I gotta ask you, Jason. So hearing this and certainly seeing it uh, happen during your era, are you in favor of former villains joining up with the heroes or being given the spotlight in their own title? What do you think of that turn? Boy, you know, it was an in, that's a, that's another insightful article, and like I liked the people they talked to and the insight they had. The, the responses, Mark's responses, you know, certainly. Scott's. You know, it's interesting since then we've seen things like The Shield, you know, where your lead character, Vic Mackey, really commits an irredeemable act on the first episode, right? And I remember actually watching that 
post my comics. I think it was post my comics career and thinking like, oh my God, he just, they just broke the one rule. Like he commits this irredeemable act right out of the gate. And now you're sort of rooting for him, right? Through the next five seasons or what have you. I think sort of what everyone said is kind of true and also kind of wrong. I mean, not so where Mark Wade was at that moment where it's just like, well, there's nothing. I mean, look, it is fantasy and I mean, look what we've done with Magneto in the films. Magneto is incredibly relatable in the films. Um, And he's definitely a character you understand and root for, right? Of course, maybe in the films, he's not killing as many good people, you know, or he's he's justified. Look, I, I think that question, right? That question, can you redeem these characters? Does it ever? That is such a great premise for fiction, for storytelling, for drama, right? And I think that alone is enough to drive storytelling, you know? So I think because of that, because of the inevitable drama between the characters that have been wronged, you know, look what they're doing with Negan, you know, for for whatever the problems with the Walking Dead series, look at what they're doing with Negan and what they did with him. You know, it's like, obviously he did terrible things, but you know, they asked that question a lot in Walking Dead on various sides of it. So I think it's a razor line to walk sometimes, but I think, you know, whether it's the right or wrong thing isn't really the question. Does it make for good storytelling? And I think it makes for great storytelling if done well, like anything, like any premise. So I think the premise of having relatable villains and even villains that do good and villains you will find yourself rooting for, I think the questions that derive for that, the questions that were brought up in that very article, um, those are great questions. But again, I, I wouldn't shy away from because, you know, because of that, I would say, If you can really come up with a great idea to lean in on that kind of stuff, if you're asking those questions and trying to really honestly answer them through the work, through the storytelling, I think that's really good. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. I I think it's it's an interesting idea. I I even like it when it's just, you know, the one-off uneasy alliances, you know, it's like- Sure, yes. uh, Keep up this time. I'm not saying that we're on the same side, but for this moment, let's uh, let's combine our forces here and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I don't know, like, for example, in the case of Magneto becoming Joseph at this time, he takes away the core of the character. So I just like that idea, because basically, You've just created an entirely new character from with the baggage. I mean, look, it it might raise questions, like, and they do say that right in there. Well, how much can you blame a guy if it's not really the guy anymore, right? That's an interesting question. I don't know if it's the I don't know if it's the meatiest, right? It's not the meatiest question you can ask. But you know, yes, I, I think I think if look at Breaking Bad, Walter White. I mean, my God, I rooted for Walter White. I I related to parts of him, maybe maybe too many, but you know, he he ultimately was a terrible terrible guy, you know, and and got what he deserved and uh but you know though i think those things are really cool but again joseph i agree with you it's like eh, yeah that's not to me that's not the meatiest way to approach that the way they did it in the films though i thought was very interesting well and then um, uh, on the other side here of the coin of uh, somebody who has never really had that moral dilemma and maybe you say there you know that's a downfall of the character but i don't think so the wizard q a with mark wade and ron garney is a conversation with wizard's favorite captain america creative team who are returning to the title after a year-long interruption by the Heroes Reborn event, Wade sets the record straight about why he did not join Rob Liefeld's run on the character. Quote, I just want to get the record straight. Rob never asked me to write Captain America. Rob did ask me if I would be interested in dialoguing pages already drawn and plotted. I said, thank you. I'm not interested. I keep seeing a print that Liefeld asked Mark Wade and he said, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> uh, Rod Gardy explains his confusion of being taken off the title when sales and critical acclaim were increasing. Quote, I didn't get it. 
they hired their competitors to do the job we were already doing. I thought it was just a silly rumor. I thought that's baloney. It'll never happen. And then it just <laughs> became known. It wasn't like there was an official announcement to us. I still have trouble understanding why they did it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So a lot of confusion there, but when asked why he would return to write cap after all that went down, Wade explains, quote, I want to do captain America. I'm not going to let business decisions get in the way of my creative pursuits yeah. on what they plan to do with the character. Wade says, quote, it'd be cool to see cap reappear in Tokyo on the top of a bullet train. I would love to see how the other nations and cultures perceive captain America. Those who bought uh, the new number one from this reunited team know that cap does indeed make his return to the six, six universe in japan and confronts the intrusion of western culture on that country so he was 100 percent seeding that idea i don't know if he was working out in his brain right there or if he was just saying hey that's what's to come but so in general we've kind of talked about it a little bit here but as these creative teams were coming back together on these like four titles that previously had been falling in sales were not the highest caliber except for captain america which had been climbing back up what would you say was the vibe of the post heroes reborn bullpen like was there a renewed like hey we got it back we can't drop the ball again like what was the attitude over there i think the attitude was excitement it was optimism it was excitement you know there look and again there's so many layers of my segmented memories of those times because there was always god this was like they, you we were getting a new president and they, things would change on a, on a whim because you thought we could be going one direction. But I think this was one of those moments within a lot of turmoil where this was sort of like we felt like we were the good guys and we felt like we had won. And also, you know, you were getting these. Yes, you were getting Cap back with Wade and Garney, which is fantastic, you know, because obviously they were doing some some fantastic work, some of the greatest Cap work ever. But you're also getting a chance to do, you know, you look Kurt Busiek and uh, George Perez on Avengers. That seemed really exciting. And of course, they really delivered the goods, right? We had Alan Davis and Scott Lobdell on Fantastic Four, even though I wanted Mike Allred. <laughs> Then, you know, you've got what Kurt was also on Iron Man, right? So you had Kurt Busiek and Kush, the lovely Sean Chen, who I love, on Iron Man. And, you know, they were they these were great creative teams and doing really great work. And it was uh, it felt it felt sort of like waking up. Part of it was waking up from a nightmare where they, these books have been taken away from editorial. I, I wasn't the only one taking it personally. That was an exciting time. And I would say generally the the mood was optimism. Yeah, well, that, that's good to hear. And yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that Wizard was very excited about. In fact, they devote an entire special to Heroes Return and everything coming back. So there's a special issue that comes out shortly. We'll be covering in a month or so. Yay. So we'll get into those details. But yeah, they were, they were right on board the whole time. But I want to ask you about another event because Marvel was wanting to get back to basics, like we said, and the Market Watch section of this... This issue features the headline, Flashback Month has mixed results, reporting that, quote, the lower retail orders make it tough to call the month-long event a success. Some readers saw Flashback Month as a chance to save moolah and skip buying comics for a month. If ignored, the negative one issues wouldn't break a collector's run on a title. The end result, sales on most titles either held steady or went down. Now, in a previous article, uh, Scott Lobdell was cited as the originator of that negative one issue concept that he wanted to do just for the X title but then Bob Harris kind of co-opted that and said, let's make it a company-wide event. So I'm yeah. just curious, when you remember that happening, what was the reaction to the flashback month when it was announced? Look, I remember my own reaction to flashback. I was super excited. I thought it was a really keen idea with a lot of opportunity for fun. 
right? Like that was my, that was my thing. And I thought this is a neat idea. We're going to come up with stories. It's going to be like the, whatever, the month or the week before the start of the Marvel universe, right? That's the idea before yeah. the FF go up in their, in their rocket ship. I really got on board with that. And I can't remember where these ideas came from. I just remember it's like, oh, what if Stan Lee introduces each book? Oh, wouldn't that be fun? What if we do like the letters pages? Like I, that might've been my idea. Let's do the letters pages like we used to with the funny names and just, you know, the stark, because I, I, I had a whole thing with like the over-designed letters pages. I won't get into that here. <laughs> I was like, that'll be really fun. And I remember Michael Higgins, who used to be an editor at Marvel, was was freelancing. He was helping come up with those really punny names of letters pages like we used to have in the 60s and 70s and drew doing the, the mastheads for those letters pages. I was excited about seeing all that stuff come in. And then the writers, you know, I'm, I'm sure they were frustrated if they had ongoing stories, but they were also trying to figure out ways to make this work, which I think is a great thing. And at the time, I just remember being excited about it. However, then, you know, one of our marketing guys who I, very good friends with a guy named John Dokes came in. Once this plan had started to go out to some of the bigger retailers, there was a retailer, a guy who was, had these big double page spreads inside of the comics at the time who sold new comics, old comics, and basically said, hey, I will up my orders by 30% or 40% if you do a numbering gimmick. And we didn't want to do a numbering gimmick, right? We just wanted it to be, what if the latest issue was 345, then the flashback would be 346. It would just be like a little masthead thing. This month, all the books are doing this. This whole negative one thing was because of a retailer. And they bought into it, right? Because he said, well, we'll, we'll get, we'll sell this many more comics, you know? And because this one guy is willing to spend, I don't know, $100,000 more because he had that much buying power. But I, you know, I thought, wow, this is a terrible idea. You know, we don't want to do this thing. But, you know, ultimately we got saddled with a numbering gimmick. And I'm of the belief that certain things can really hobble things. I do believe the numbering gimmick really damaged what Flashback Month could have been. Didn't change the stories, obviously, but it really gave people an excuse to to feel like these things were disconnected because the writers were trying to connect what was happening in those issues to the larger stories or at least have them matter in a way you know mm -hmm. these weren't these weren't inconsequential stories and so that numbering gimmick really f***ed us quite frankly well it's interesting you say that because it does feel like the last gasp of that gimmick era because you they've already done zero issues they've already done half issues through wizard so to do a negative one it's like we have nowhere else to go although dc eventually does like the 1000 issues or something so yeah <laughs> we found one more uh to, to grab onto but yeah yeah it definitely just felt like kind of an outdated concept at that point but yes and you know and in retrospect there's some really wonderful there's at least one really interesting thing that came from this which i thought was great given the, the conceit of the idea we weren't going to do like modern splash pages right you weren't going to have these like you know fights breaking from one panel over into the next so it was going to be early 60s style storytelling you know nine panel pages or whatever and, and so forth and i remember Adam Kubert, fantastic Adam Kubert, also a lovely human being, was really upset, right? He was like, are you like, this is terrible. I don't want to do this, you know, right? This is like, he felt like he was being constrained because he was doing this very edgy work and everything. But there were the orders were on the table. That was it. You had to do, you know, these classic grid storytelling like Stan and Jack did. And he did. And ultimately, he turned in some of the best work of Flashback Month. And as he explained to me later, it really changed how he did his storytelling. Right. It opened him up to the idea of the power of this sort of grid storytelling instead of leaning in on these modern affectations, these very 90s affectations of, you know, breaking panels and doing things, you know, and having lots of double page spreads, half page spreads and so on. He really rediscovered the power of the of the storytelling grid of comic books. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Like, you know, Flashback Month did that, you know, and I think I think that I may have also used that to, to get us away from the over designed, colorful backgrounds of the black text 
on letters pages. There was a lot to that. And, you know, if the 90s were overburdened with darkness, Flashback Month was certainly a moment to try to bring some of that lightness back in. No, but I was I was a huge champion of Flashback at the time. I loved where it was going. I love the stand stuff. You know, I love the design affectations of it, the letters pages. You know, I was so excited about all of it because I really did feel like it was bringing back comic book fundamentals for a reason and in a way that we could really embrace. And then that numbering gimmick came on and it really, I really, oh, it really hurt my heart at the time. Yeah, but you said it didn't affect the stories. I actually read all of them uh, for an episode a a month or so back. And I really, I did enjoy them by and large. really fun there was some great stuff in there but the development of those types of stories is how we're going to close out this segment because delivery room in the next article is an exploration of the journey of a comic book from creative concept to approval for production through quotes from the comics pros in all areas of the process but kurt Busiek actually explains how he came up with the basic concept for Thunderbolts. And this really stood out to me because this is something that uh, I myself have participated in. Says, quote, "Uh, The actual origin of Thunderbolts came when I used to live in New Jersey and drive to New England to visit my parents. To keep myself awake, I'd give myself books to write and work out about two to three years of continuity. One trip, I assigned myself Avengers and came up with the plan that the Masters of Evil would ultimately conquer them by posing as new heroes and slowly replacing them. At the time i thought it was a neat idea and i filed it away that's such a like i loved reading that as well and i was like that is awesome but before this podcast for about six years i had another show called sequel quest where we were pitching our sequel ideas for movies that never got it or you know Ooh. could have used a better version so when i would be on road trips i'd just be like planning these sequels oh. to these, you know <laughs> fantastic you know that's really neat uh but going on here the article says quote while a good deal of new proposals for new series come from freelance pros ideas for many proposals come from within the company itself such as nightwing impulse and x-man the editor won't write up the project himself he'll contact a bunch of creators and solicit proposals from them a proposal is a formal letter that's roughly 10 pages in length and explains the basics of a new series or a new direction for an existing series and dc comics executive editor mike carlin explains the next step is quote the individual editors weed out the decent proposals from all the others and act as their advocates finally then the proposal is taken to the editor-in-chief and the senior editors to make the final decision so veteran dc editor archie goodwin shares his criteria quote the most important thing for me is if the concept contains characters that interest me you can have a wonderful concept for a superpower or a nifty plot twist but if i come away not caring about the characters you've got nothing meanwhile your old boss jason bob harris explains quote does the proposal have heart? Does it have something that will hook the reader month in and month out? Also, I look at who the main adversaries will be as well, because they often help define the leading characters. There's more to it, of course, but that's the bulk of what I look at. Yeah. So, Jason, you mentioned a book that you were involved in shepherding at some point, but were you asked fairly often to weigh in on proposals for new series or characters or possible creative teams during your time at Marvel? Yeah, I mean, when I was an assistant, you know, I got to I got to be involved in some of that. Of course, with the X-Men, most of the stuff was really an ongoing thing. So, and you know, when new books were coming in in other offices, they certainly wouldn't 
necessarily ask us for our input on that stuff. The one thing I can definitely remember working on was Bishop, The Last X-Man, which just got a really great action figure, um, which I finally got to have 20 years later. But I got to be involved in that process because that was the book I was shepherding in and we wanted to do a Bishop book. And it really was sort of like what they explained. Maybe it was like we went on to do a solo book of either this character, this character, I don't know if it was Storm or whatever. But ultimately we settled on Bishop and it was my job to come up with what we were going to do and the creative team behind it. And so I went through a lot of those steps and those processes. And let me see if I remember right. And I hope I'm, I hope I remember my fiction, right? I was out to lunch with Bob talking about things. And I was like, you know, I'm not really sure what we're going to do with this thing. And he talked about, was it Adam Strange sort of lives on two worlds at once? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we talked about Adam Strange and that, you know, I was like, can we do that with Bishop? Because Bishop is a t- hasn't been a time traveler, essentially. That's not his power. But could we have him in two different times at once? And then it sort of became this other thing. And then, you know, and then I was talking with Joe Harris about it. And then it sort of became, I was thinking about, believe it or not, I was thinking about Jonah Hex when they put Jonah Jonah Hex in the future. Yeah. And they just had this book called Hex, you know, and he's like this post-apocalyptic guy, which I love that high concept. I thought that was screaming cool, right? You know, I know we brought characters from the past into the pre- you know, in the present and stuff in Marvel. Anyway, so I it was it was our excuse to sort of do a a Dungeons and Dragons comic, but using mutants and mutant powers. And so ultimately I saw pitches from my friend Ben Rabb, who's a successful TV writer and producer now. I think he's one of the writers and producers on Quantum Leap. He had a pitch that wasn't related to any of that. It was like having having Bishop take on being a police officer, right? He decides to leave being a mutant because he was a cop in the future. It was a great pitch. Um, you know, so he was going to be a cop in New York City. What, what other writer did I hear from? Maybe from John Francis Moore. I don't remember. But then it was Joe Harrison. He had this idea sort of taken from this conversation we had of splitting time and, and doing this thing. And then I can't remember the whole evolution of it, but it became this sort of idea that he's thrown into a future, but it's a it's an alternate future where a mutant war, ultimately Magneto is the secret. Magneto had sort of done this, you know, this EM pee around the whole world and destroyed machines forever. And so it was a world of magic and sword and sorcery, but the sorcery was mutant powers, right? And we had a lot of fun developing it and developing the characters. Chris Cross was one of the, was someone we were talking to about maybe doing product designs for it, maybe being the artist. We didn't go that way. So his designs ultimately got pushed to the side. I brought in, I had extra development money. I hired Lenny Liu at the time to come up with character designs, brought in George Gente to be the monthly artist and everything, and came up with a look for this thing, this sort of rough post-apocalyptic world. And uh, I loved it. I loved coming up with the, you know, helping come up with the characters and the design, but it really was. And then, you know, of course, taking this back to Bob and saying, can we do this book? We also had a desire to do a book that wasn't completely tied into all the stuff right? Because any solo book you would do, you would have to completely redo because the line, there'd be a line-wide crossover. And we were just going to take Bishop out of the, off the map yeah, know, and do his own book that was unrelated to anything that was happening in current continuity. And, uh, and ultimately, like six issues in, they bring him back. And that's the only time I ever got really mad at Mark Powers. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, he's, he's not in this timeline anymore. <laughs> Wow. Like you're killing me. Yeah. Because um, I love Mark and I, he's one of my best friends still, one of my close friends. But I was like, oh my God, what what did we do? Like, I think in issue seven, like he's supposed to show up in like current continuity. And I'm like, what? The development process was fascinating. And of course, even if it was development or pitching for new writers like Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel coming out of the X-Men, you know, they're pitching. And uh, one of the, I remember one of the quotes that Steve Siegel told me at the time, he says, it's easier to pitch a film than it is to pitch a comic book. Oh. Because a pitch a film, you can go into a studio exec, give them an elevator pitch, which is like a page, and they can greenlight things on that, you know, and you'll start development and getting paid with comics. They want you to have like a Bible and they want to have these character wheels and all this other stuff. They really, they really ask for a lot in comics. At least they did at the time in the context that I was aware of. 
Yeah, that's wild. But relating that last story to film, hey, it's time we find out what was going on in the world of comics to screen in Heroes in Motion. I love it. So The Dark Knight Returns is not an exploration of the 1986 Frank Miller classic, but rather an interview with Paul Dini, Bruce Timm, and Alan Burnett as they address the rumors about the revamped version of Batman the Animated Series that was premiering on the Kids WB Network at this time. Now, the first rumor is that the network demanded a more kid-friendly approach, so it will be campy like the 60s series. Now, the showrunners are adamant that there is no camp, but <laughs> that they are getting rid of the ground mobster-based stories of the early seasons in favor of the classic supervillains. Robin and Batgirl will appear in every episode, and Batman will actually be darker, wearing a costume inspired by Frank Miller's A Dark Knight Returns. Says Dini, quote, Lightning the show does not mean we're lightning Batman himself. He's not a scout leader. He has sidekicks around and they're part of the team, but they're somewhat wary of him. They keep their distance because this guy could go off. Comics fans will be happy to know that the new Robin is Tim Drake with a modified origin, while Dick Grayson will be returning in his Nightwing persona. Now, many fans of this era, myself included, criticized the simplified, cartoony look of the new character design, about which Bruce Tim declares, quote, it's not like you're watching alternate world Batman. It's still within the parameters, but I think it's just better. It's just a refinement of what it used to be. I think the old ones are horrible now. They were okay, but the new ones are so much better. <laughs> it's much zippier. It's like, oh no, Bruce Tim breaking our hearts. My old work sucked. This is great. The final rumor is that Warner Brothers will give less freedom in storytelling in order to protect their Batman characters. But Deanie refutes this saying, quote, when we were at Fox, we would get five single space pages of notes on things we couldn't do. On the WB, we get maybe two paragraphs of things we can't do. Mm. At Fox, they were really picky. They had a million opinions about what we should be doing. Nobody bothered with us like that at WB. So, wow. Jason, I'm just curious. You know, you're deep in the world of Marvel, but were you tracking the Batman and Superman adventures as it was launching with these new character designs? Do you remember this change? I remember the change. Look, I, I was a big fan of Batman the Animated Series like pretty much everyone else. I mean, when they were doing the Superman stuff, I was like, oh, it's cool because the Batman stuff was inspired by the Flesher Supermans, obviously, and they're going to be able to do that. I did not, however, watch any of that stuff. Not, I mean, not much of it. So I wasn't like deep into it. I didn't dive over into what they were doing in their animated stuff. I just remember thinking, well, if Bruce Tim and Paul Dini are involved, it's going to be fine. Yeah. I mean, I definitely jumped off because of the character designs. Like, I was mm. just like, I do not like this. Like, it just screamed to me, we're not darker. This is for little kids now. But it makes me really want to explore that because they say like, oh, Batman's going to like say very few words. He's just going to be off in the distance. He's going to be a mysterious figure again. So I want to see if that is really how it played out. Yeah, I mean, some of what they were saying definitely sounds like, well, you have to toe the studio line here, right? And also, look, them generally finding the positives in a situation Situation. Look, they didn't bring in some cheap ass, you know, showrunners who had never worked. They brought these guys who were revered, who had created this other thing that really has clearly stood the test of time. And they yeah. were trying to they were trying to follow this new edict and do what they do within it. 
And I mean, and they brought in like some wild characters. I do know there was one episode with like a character called Roxy Rocket or something. Mm. He rides around on this like rocket thing. I mean, it was just like they, they got to be pretty creative with what they were doing. So, hey. Yeah. If anybody deserved getting the benefit of the doubt, it's Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini. But a couple other guys who always seem to get the benefit of the doubt were Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane. So it's time we rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. <laughs> Adam Pope, king of the segways. Hey. All right. So this first story here, Todd Lures Kiss to McFarland Productions, explains why the band Kiss has decided to have their comic book adventures published for the first time by a company other than Marvel Comics. Gene Simmons of Kiss, a lifelong comic book fan, explains that the band went with McFarland because of, quote, respect for what he's done and a longtime admiration of his Spawn comic. The series will be drawn by Angel Medina, with inks by Kevin Conrad and written by Brian Hogan. The concept focuses on a traveling circus whose visitors find them themselves in creepy morality plays, much like old EC horror comics. Members of the circus, like the Ringmaster or the Lion Tamer, they act as avatars for the elemental kiss gods who appear to oversee and sometimes interact with the action of the story. Says Simmons, quote, the concept came from us. The Psycho Circus is a tour theme we're working on, and we may even use the title for an album, which is exactly what happens the next year as the Psycho Circus album, tour, action figures, comics, and even a video game are released in 1998. Uh, and I saw Kiss on the opening night of the Psycho oh, wow. Circus Store at Dodger Stadium on Halloween 1998. Uh, it was my first Kiss concert and now uh, wow. in November I'm going to my 10th Kiss concert wow. in the Probably my last. This is reportedly their final tour. We'll see if that holds. Uh. <laughs> But Jason, I'm just curious, were you aware of any attempted negotiations between KISS and Marvel to continue the 20-year partnership? Because in 96, I think it was, they released their KISS Nation comic book through Marvel where they yeah. meet with the X-Men and all this stuff. So they were definitely still doing something up to this moment. I don't believe there was anything happening uh, between Marvel and KISS at that point. You know, um, and one of the reasons may have been uh, because of the breakup of Jeff Loeb jumping over because Jeff... Jeff Loeb is old friends with Gene Simmons somehow. I don't know how all that fit together. Um, so when Jeff was over with, uh, you know, with Rob and some of the image guys, um, you know, maybe he was like, don't go to Marvel. But also Marvel was a chaotic mess at a point. And if you're trying to deal with Kiss, you need someone who's at a level who can sort of deal with that. And we were very focused. We'd just gotten the heroes back. So no, I don't think there was anything. You know, when I was trying to recruit Neil Gaiman to come over, you know, the closest thing I ever got to any of that was he was like, oh, and I was, I wanted copies of my Alice Cooper comic that I did with you guys because <laughs> Neil had done an Alice Cooper comic following yeah. up from the old Alice Cooper comic from you know the, the earlier days I think what Marvel premiere I think in the eight, early 80s or late 70s you know and so I was trying to find copies of that to send to Neil to try to get him to take a meeting with me in New York City but no I don't remember any conversations and I suspect like Marvel was just not even thinking of Kiss because they didn't have room to think of Kiss you know there wasn't anyone whose job was to sort of seek that kind of create that opportunity out of you know we didn't have that 
kind of division. That yeah, Marvel, Marvel wasn't doing Nightcat anymore, where they're trying yeah. to make their own pop star. <laughs> yeah, and look, I mean, I think that could have happened if there was someone on editorial row who had that fire, that personal fire. You could have definitely made that, as I was trying to get Mike Allred, as I was trying to get Neil Gaiman. I think if personally I was really gung-ho to do another Kiss comic at Marvel, I could have tried to make that happen, but I was not aware of anybody. Well, fair enough. Now, another kind of tried to get a licensed group over on their side. Jim Lee was trying to get the Star Wars license for Wildstorm since Lucasfilm's contract with Dark Horse was up at the end of 1998. Says Lee, quote, basically, I gave a detailed six-year publishing plan for what I would do with the license. Wow. I already knew that I would draw something, J. Scott Campbell would draw something, and Peter David and James Robinson have expressed interest in writing. But as wow. we know, Jim Lee never publishes Star Wars comics and sells Wildstorm to DC shortly after this. J. Scott Campbell wouldn't have been available because he was doing his thing. So meanwhile, I believe Lucasfilm just reduced their contract with Dark Horse. So they just kind of stayed with what they do. You remember reading the Dark Horse expanded universe Star Wars book? I do. And can I just say, my God, Jim Lee was potentially going to be doing everything. You know, yes. the Defenders, <laughs> you know, like the Punisher. My God, in the Star Wars stuff. I was a Star Wars fan and I was hungry for Star Wars content when the, those Dark Horse books, those first books came out. Like, yes, I was buying them. I was reading them. I love that stuff. And I stuck with them for a few years, reading the, the second and second versions and some of the spinoffs and things. I don't think by 97, I was still actively reading a lot of the Dark Horse Star Wars stuff, but I read years of it for sure. And I really, I still remember it. I still, you know, because I'm watching the Dave Filoni, you know, John Favreau stuff. I'm wondering how much of that stuff they're going to incorporate because they do that. Yeah. Yeah. They've been grabbing characters here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the non-canon stuff, you know, they do that. That was really great Star Wars content. It was really great sequel stuff. You know, it's hard to imagine now because we have so much content of just about anything you can imagine. There was nothing for Star Wars. So when those books came out, they were real. There was like Bendy's they'd come out with like 91 yes. or two. Yeah. And it's, I bought all those too. And they were terrible, but I didn't care because they were Star Wars and they were new. And then buying those, those Dark Horse books. But the thing about the Dark Horse books is they weren't crap. They were really good books. And, yeah. you know, it was exciting to read them. Yeah. I've only like read a handful of them, but I'm always impressed both with the yeah. art and the stories. I know. I'm trying to remember Cam. Kennedy, I think, did internal artwork. I think what Dave Dorman did some covers for yeah. them. Just beautiful stuff. Cam Kennedy is like, you know, if, and again, if I got that right, but I think that's right. Cam Kennedy like drawing the machinery and everything, and then the just the 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 walls and the and the droids and stuff. It always had this great gritty look to it, and just felt really good. And his his interpretations of the likenesses were really nice, and it just felt heavy and cool, like not in a bad way, heavy, but just very very grounded and and really nice. And the coloring was really fantastic on him. No, it was it was just great stuff. Yeah, so unfortunately, we never got a Jim Lee, Darth Vader, but we did oh, yeah, get right? uh, something else published by Wildstorm, which was the first Gen 13 Generation X crossover, a 32-page one-shot. Of course, as we know, Gen 13 was originally going to be called Gen X, and then Marvel said, no, we're developing Generation X over here, so kind of right. interesting for them to finally combine. But the book is written by Gen 13 scribe Brandon Choi. It's going to be drawn by Art Adams, and the Ooh. story involves Gen 13 villain Trent and Generation Expo M-Plate teaming up to pit the teams against each other before realizing who the real bad guys are. Jim Lee reveals that, quote, and as with many fun-loving meetings of teenagers, characters from both teams will develop crushes on each other. <laughs> 
The book was also released in a 3D edition, which was this big thing Wildstorm was doing at this time. They re-released Gen 13 number one in a 3D edition and several other titles. They were just like, we're going to make this the new gimmick. 3D, 3D. I don't think it caught on. but It didn't. Yeah, you mentioned earlier you weren't really paying attention to Gen 13, but you did have that connection to Generation X. So is that what led to this Generation X underground? I mean, look, I was the assistant on Generation X, certainly, and then I became the editor on Generation X. Insofar as this Gen 13 crossover? No, I mean, that, that that Gen 13 crossover, I don't think I put too much thought to, other than, you know, if someone, like, I honestly, I just didn't care much. I mean, again, it's not a slide against Jim or his books or any of that stuff or Brandon's work, Brandon Choi's work or anything. It was just like, it just didn't matter. It was a one shot. And so it's sort of like, you know, when you're battling the chaos of your schedules and everything, what's that thing? Will it affect our characters? No, it's, a, it's an imaginary story. Good. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, let them have fun, you know? I mean, look, like anyone, it's exciting to see Art Adams draw anything. And did he end up drawing it? I don't remember. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, it's always exciting to see Art Adams draw characters. And so that was exciting. I ultimately got him to do Gen X covers for a little while. He liked Jim and I'm sure Jim loved working with Art. I mean, who wouldn't love working with Art? So yeah, so no, but that had nothing to do with Gen X Underground insofar as that goes. Okay. Gen X Underground was definitely its own thing. An idea pitched by Scott Lobdell, really. And then, uh, and then Jim and I went to town once we got on the phone together. And that was really all Jim my food and my light guidance over a year time so cool yeah all right well now it's time that we get to our tally here uh we've been tracking since the beginning how many times jim and todd have been mentioned in wizard magazine so in this issue jim has been mentioned seven times todd mcfarland's been mentioned five times brings our total to jim lee 427 mentions Todd McFarlane, 415. Very close. Yeah. I mean, Jim just recently in the last like five issues overtook Todd. Todd was in the lead forever and uh, he's kind of slowed down because now he's just like inking and writing Spawn and doing his movie and doing his toys. And I mean, Heroes Are Born was going to take a lot. Like Jim Lee and Heroes Are Born that year alone is going to up his mentions. Yeah. As we close out here, I want to introduce a new segment, Jason. Here you are. Mm, dun, dun, dun. It's called Riddle Me This. Ooh, okay. I'm using it as a chance to take a look at the bigger picture ideas in the comic book industry. So during the down period, as many people refer to it, from 1995 to 2000, following the boom of the early 90s, how huge sales were and everything else, it it seemed like that period led to some of the most fun comics from DC and Marvel. Things like Amalgam, lots of crossovers, Marvels and Kingdom Come, Age of Apocalypse, things like that. Do you feel like DC and Marvel maybe achieved their best creatively during a down period when they're a little bit desperate and they start taking chances? They start to saying, let's see what works. Yeah, go for it. Who cares at this point? Let's just see what comes out. Like, do you do you see that as a trend? Uh, my answer to that is is very simply this. I think, I don't know that the downturn spurred this kind of creativity. I do think the boom really just tamped it down. I didn't tamp it down. Not that people weren't creative. It's just that the machine needed so many books to be fed. You know, I think at one point Marvel was publishing, I don't know, 150 books a month or something. I mean, it was completely bonkers. And so whether or not, you know, certainly that wasn't a good idea to publish that many books, but they felt the business machine felt they needed to. So 
pressure was put on the whole system to do that. Did desperate times allow for certain kinds of creativity? I don't know that Look, I think those things really harmed creativity. Those stresses were not good. I just think people wanted to do certain kinds of work. You know, I think I, th I think it was just the freedom from having to feed the machine so much material, right? I think the industry was demanding more quality, was demanding different kinds of things and was demanding diverse contents. And you could say it was driven by things like image, or you could say it was driven by maturation of the audience. I don't know that I would say it was desperation which drove any of those those books that you you came up with there. Um, okay. I think it was just wanting to come up with something really cool and wanting to one-up, you know, wanting to better yourself. I think that's what Age of Apocalypse was. I think that was Scott saying, I want to do the biggest thing ever in X-Men, right? You know, like, that's what I want to do. It wasn't like, oh my God, we're going to go bankrupt in two years, you know, <laughs> No, I don't think any of that was on anyone's mind. I think, again, like Marvels and all that stuff, that was just creators really wanting to do something really different and being in the right position to do so and editors being in the right position to champion those things and to shepherd those things along. I think those 3D books are more of like what you see from like, I don't know, it's sort of like the post-boom stuff, you know, <laughs> but it's the freedom to not have to publish 150 books a month allowed people to do better work. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, because you could say like, well, DC and Marvel sales are down, they're going to go together to do this big event. But at the same time, you also say, well, no, it was Mike Carlin and Mark Grunewald saying, of course, hey, we're friends, let's see if we can put this together. We can, we got the powers of B to agree to it. Awesome. You know, like that kind of thing. So that, yeah. And that's what it was. It was, I mean, let's, without those two guys, that never happens. The Mar That Marvel DC crossover does not happen. That is, it's interesting because you think, oh, it's all driven by business, but no, that was completely driven by these two men their love for each other and their friendship you know and the fact that one was now at dc even though they worked together and one was at marvel and they were in positions of power and where they just dreamed up i mean this is some of the greatest comic books of all time we're just friends wanting to make up fun stuff that they would love to see and then hopefully if it goes the way they want it to that the readers will want to see i mean that's some of the best stuff like kurt Busiek thinking up what are the craziest ideas while i'm driving to see my folks you know i mean th those are great ways for it to happen jason this has been a lot of fun man I, I really appreciate your stories as always your candor i mean we we learned things i'm sure pieces of the puzzle that a lot of people have not heard before so that's awesome but what can you tell us about some of your latest projects things you're working on where can we find you online and, and follow your adventures i'm on instagram at collecting candy i'm on twitter i think at the same i just started a, a tiktok thing but you know i'm not doing tiktok things on it but maybe i'll figure out ways to do like short things that will work on that format i don't know i'm still playing with it as a tool it's interesting. But let me see. These days, uh, season four of The Food That Built America is out. And I'm in just about every episode of that. And that's on every Sunday on the History Channel. 9 p.m. Eastern time, I think, is when the new episodes air. But the fun thing is they run marathons on Sunday. So like I think starting at like one in, one in the afternoon, they're running reruns. So it's almost like I'm on History Channel all day Sunday, every Sunday. <laughs> Right. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Catch me. So, you know, um, for a while there, I was competing with The Last of Us, which is not a competition you want to be in, you know, or the Oscars or whatever. But no, so I'm on there and I'm going to be doing other TV things. I was just on another show on history. I'm on an episode of a thing that I'm shooting next week uh, for Fox Business, all about the business family empires of America. And I'm talking about other things, you know, and it's just it's that kind of stuff. So that's where people find me on social media and on on History Channel quite a lot these days. And occasionally at a uh, convention near you, sitting down with Michael Golden. Oh, yeah. No, like New York Comic Con is one of my favorite things in the world. I love Comic Con. 
friends. I love fandom. I love seeing what everyone's up to. And I love seeing my old friends. So I love going to Comic-Con. Yeah. And of course, if you want to stay connected with Wizards, the podcast guide to comics out there, you know where to find us. We're on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Hey, are you subscribed to the YouTube channel? You know, what do we have going on over there? Our top 10 videos. We have our haul videos. We have special bonus episodes and video versions of podcasts, things for you to enjoy. So make sure you're connected with us over there. But hey, if you want the full experience, if you want the behind the scenes, you know, Jason took us behind the scenes at Marvel. You want to be behind the scenes at Wizards? Hey, then you can jump on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics, where you can get not only a full scan of the issues, early releases, unedited versions of the episodes. Yes, you get to hear all all our flubs and technical difficulties. (laughs) So exciting. So much entertainment. But we also provide you uh, with the opportunity to influence the show. You can make your opinions known, especially on our new Heroes in Motion tier, where we have a full extra podcast coming to you each month with our 90s Super Cinema series, where our patrons are voting on a superhero or a comic book themed film and then we are discussing it it's michael pete and myself getting into a nice casual conversation it's very fun so far we've done batman forever the phantom coming up we're going to do the 1997 spawn film but also you get to join our exclusive discord server where you can get even further down the rabbit hole into the world of wizards just a continuous 24-hour conversation about 90s comics and beyond and if we're talking about patrons Patreon, of course, we have to shout out to Make It All Possible. That's right. We sincerely appreciate all that you do to help the podcast grow and make things more fun off the mic. From the Retro Network, we have Mickey and Jason. I was actually just talking to Mickey on our Discord server about Mike Mignola comics. He loves this Baltimore comic. He's recommending all sorts of stuff to me. And even Jason is collecting Transformers comics these days. He's basically almost got a complete run of the Marvel G.I. Joe, and now he's going after Transformers. Uh, Steve King. Steve, you're always hanging in. You're always commenting and liking. So thank you for that. Steven Forshaw, Steve, you're a rock star. Thank you for your contribution. Mitchell Hall, you belong in the Hall of Fame, man. You're doing it right. Meltface Killer, still scared to run into you in an alley, but I'm sure you would give me a high five and it would all be good. We got Mark McDonald, our number one patron over there on the Heroes in Motion tier. He's having a great time. He wants you to join him, talk about some of these movies we're discussing. How about Mark Quill? Hey, did two Marks make a right? I don't know. Uh, Lee Markowitz, yeah, you're rocking it. You know it. Joe Marcello from the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast. And I say it every episode, get on over there. Those guys are doing some of the best interviews in the biz. I learn amazing things from these comics professionals that they are interviewing. Of course, Gabe from Gabe Loves 90s Comics. He is going to be joining us for our Top Cow special. Yeah, that is actually our next episode, so we're excited to have him be a part of that. Denim Jedi, I love the fashion. I want to see more denim in the Star Wars universe. Are you here in Disney Plus? And finally, Brian Acosta, or is it pronounced Brian? Anybody out there a fan of Brian Regan? I just saw live in concert. It was very fun. Anywho, those are our patrons, but if you want your name read, it's just five bucks a month. Get onto our basic tier, you get all the benefits, and we will give you a shout out. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation.
presentation of the Retro Network.